in Proverbs 14, in verses 19 through 35, it's been a difficult thing for me going through the Proverbs because every single sentence can actually be a sermon. And so I don't want to skip things, and so we're slowing down a little bit. But Proverbs 14, we're going to talk about things like justice one day and how we need to tend to the poor. You know, we always are dealing with the poor. How, how do we minister to them? How we need to plan to do good, not just stumble onto it. How we need to be working hard and be wise with our wealth and how we need to witness uh, in, in, in a truthful fashion because that can actually save souls. How we need to cultivate a healthy fear of the Lord and drink from the fountain of life in order to avoid the snares of death. And we'll talk a little bit about Whitney Houston and, and her daughter and, and what happened to them. And, and then how we also need to be careful. If any of you here, you know, you got a short fuse, you get mad right away, how dangerous that is. Uh, the ugliness of envy and out of sea inside our hearts. So we'll talk about the wisdom of being a wise servant and the secret of success for the United States of America. We'll talk about guys like Trevor Noah, a lot of different things tonight packed into these Proverbs. And so, first of all, in verse 19, we read here, it says, The evil will bow before the good and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. And so I know it seems kind of weird to visualize, you know, you got evil people and there you're standing maybe on the side and the evil, all the evil people are bowing before the good. And, but it's, it's a reality, you know, not that they're worshiping you, but uh, God is taking them down and putting them in their place in time and eternity. Now, there is a, an aspect where sometimes that happens on this side of time. You guys remember the story of Joseph, how he had a dream that all his brothers uh, bowed down before him, even his parents. And so uh, the brothers, of course, got upset about that. We're going to bow before you. And uh, they hated him for that and other reasons, and they sold him into slavery. But eventually, you guys know what happened, because this guy loved the Lord. And this guy was called by God. What ended up happening is God raised him up to save the people, and the day eventually came where all his brothers literally, physically bowed down to him. And so that can happen when God starts moving and God starts putting people in different places. But ultimately, it happens after after this life. Huh? We read about that in the book of Revelation chapter 3 in verse 9 where God said, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. And so one day in heaven, we're going to see all the crazy, ugly Things that people have done, the Adolf Hitlers, the, the rapists, the unrepentant murderers, the child molesters, all those types of things. You know, God can forgive anybody on this side of time. But if they don't repent, one day we're going to see all that happen and they will bow in our presence, not to us, but to God. You wonder, well, why does God give us this truth? Why do we have this proverb? Why do we have even this promise to even contemplate? And, and, and I think it's because we need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that no one ever gets away with all that crazy stuff, that evil will not prevail 
forever that every wrong will one day be made right and justice will be served. And so there, there's, a, there's a comfort in that, you know, that one day, you know, we're going to see that happen. Verse 20, it says, The poor man is hated even by his own neighbor, but the rich has many friends. He who despises his neighbor, it says in verse 21, sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy. Notice the, the word happy is he. You know, you want to be happy? I tell you what, the Bible says, go look for a poor person, a genuinely poor person, and be merciful to them. You know, there's something about that, how huh? it makes you feel good. Have you ever run into a, a homeless person and, and you know they're, they're genuinely hurting and they seem sincere and maybe uh, you have a, a little change, a little something to help them or maybe even you can do more than just help them temporarily. I tell you what, there is the, the formula for happiness. I think a lot of times we're looking for happiness in, in relations or ambitions or possessions. And God is saying, if you really want to be blessed, go and find someone who's less fortunate and, uh, and just, you know, pour into them. Now, now, verse 20 is an interesting verse. It really shows the way of the world, not as it should be, but unfortunately how it is. How oftentimes the poor are despised, they're looked down on, they're, they're virtually hated, right? Um, but when you get money, when you're rich, it, it says then you have many friends. And so you got the rich guy, he has a nice pool, and everybody likes him, and they come over because they want to go swimming, right? Or, or whatever the case may be, you, you pay for lunch, or you take him on vacation. Um, but, but the moment the money's gone, a lot of times, so are the friends. Um, the prodigal son might be a good example of that. Remember, he took all the wealth from his father. He goes and he spends it lavishly on prodigal living. And so during that time, man, he had the homies. They were all around him. They were all hanging out with him. But once the money ran out, so did all his friends. And so there is a, a general principle here. Uh, they say there is little friendship in the world except that which is governed by self-interest. You know, you wonder sometimes about some of these powerful people who have their friends around them. Would they still be there? Would they be their friend if there wasn't that power or that whatever they had to give to them? You know, so so that, not that it's endorsing this, not that it's condone, condoning that. It's just saying, uh, unfortunately, that's the way the world is. Of course, when we read this as Christians, we definitely don't see it that way. We know better that we need to cultivate friendships, not for what we can get, but for what we can give. We need to be friendly. And what I've learned in life as a Christian is God will bring people into your path somehow, some way. And they, if you just, you know, follow the Lord, it's really cool how God can surround you with friends. And so for us, it's not what we can get, it's what we can give, because we're not like the world. You know, when you look at verse 21 again, again, not wanting to look down on anyone, we are called to be merciful to the poor, what we see, and I think that is so cool. You guys try it, man. Uh, remember what Paul said in Acts 20, verse 35, I have shown you, he said to the Ephesian elders, by laboring like this, that you must support the weak, 
And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And have you guys experienced that? Have you noticed how true that is? Sometimes when I'm getting something, I feel guilty. I, I, don't, know, I don't really like it too much, to be honest. But when you're giving something, I don't know, there's this, especially when you know it just fits, um, there's just something so beautiful about that. And so I pray that we would know that happiness is closely connected to generosity. Let us never forget that. God cares for the poor, and, and so should we. And we're going to see that again later in verse 31. But verse 22, it says, Do they not go astray who devise evil? But mercy and truth belong to those who devise good. And, and the interesting or common denominator in these two points is the word devise. And so for us, you know, I don't know if you ever like plan on doing good, but if you think about it for a second, you know, you go and you actually sit down and I'm going to take 15 minutes and I'm just going to plan on doing something good for somebody, you know? I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but here we have the contrast. Those who are planning to do evil and those who are planning to do good. The word devise, it means to formulate in one's mind. It, it speaks of planning in advance. And here we see that we can devise evil, and if that's our heart, then we will go astray. We will go astray. Or we can devise good, which means we will experience mercy and truth. And so, you know, we, I think, all know the difference between, like, slipping into sin or presumptuously, premeditatedly going into sin, right? And there's a huge difference between, for example, manslaughter, where you accidentally kill somebody, and first-degree murder, when you do it, you know, uh, you planned it all out, it was all uh, in your heart. Um, as a matter of fact, even our courts acknowledge the difference. If you're guilty of second-degree murder, for example, you're going to get 15 years. That's the minimum sentence. But if you're guilty of uh, first-degree murder, then you're susceptible to life without parole or the death penalty. And so planned evil, that, that's a big difference. I mean, let's just say, you know, you're in a situation and uh, there's a girl and she tempts you, you know, like Joseph. It was, she was kind of caught. He was kind of caught. You know, thank God Joseph didn't fall. But if he fell, that'd be a big big difference in someone hooking up with someone on social media, you know, setting the agenda, going and meeting them, going through all the red flags, and then still falling into sexual sin. It's a big difference between someone devising evil and, and someone devising good. And so verse 23, it says, In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. And so I don't know, some of you guys probably already have it in you, or maybe you were taught it, but hopefully the Bible will help you to know that hard work pays off. It's profitable. The Hebrew word here translated labor, it actually speaks of working till it hurts, till it causes pain. It, it speaks of toiling. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word is usually translated sorrow. And so in one sense, what the Bible is saying is work so hard that your body is, is sorry that you work so hard kind of thing, you know? Um, but what we find is that when you labor like that, when you work like that, 
then there is profit, right? It's profitable. There's something admirable about, you know, a hard day's work. But, but the contrast here is the idle chatter. It says in verse 23, it leads only to poverty. You know, I remember when I worked uh, at the market, I started when I was 17 years old, and I remember working with different individuals, and some had a strong work ethic and others didn't. Some of them would just talk, they would just do whatever they could to kind of finish up in a sloppy fashion and then go and just shoot the breeze and read the paper and smoke cigarettes. I remember the guys, and I saw, even as a young man, the difference right away. And I saw how eventually, usually, not always, but usually, the lazy man gets demoted or fired. Or he doesn't go anywhere. They say you only go as far as you fail. But what we see is that the hard worker is kind of cool, you know, little by little. You see how it profited and it paid off. And so we see that in the Proverbs. uh, And we see that really in life. The hustlers, those who are working hard, uh, they get blessed. And so, you know, it's just a good thing to always have that heart. In, in verse 24, it says, The crown of the wise is their riches, but the foolishness of fools is their follies. So the crown of, of the wise, uh, their riches. There are times when God blesses a wise man with wealth. In such cases, God obviously knows that it, he can handle it. It won't be distraction. And in this case, it's like a crown or, or maybe a, a reward for their good stewardship. And so he uses that crown uh, for good. As uh, Charles Bridges said, wealth is in fact a blessing when honestly acquired and conscientiously used. And so, you know, you see that, that wise man with that crown. And so we you know, basically we want to be wise and what we find is that the fools, that the contrast here is so clear. In other words, wealth is the crown of the wise, but it cannot hide fools. It only makes their fool folly more apparent as we shake their heads and we see them spend waste and eventually lose their money. And so the contrast here between the way that the wise are good stewards and the fools are not. Verse 25, it says, A true witness delivers souls, but a deceitful witness speaks lies. So back then, you know, this spoke of one's testimony at the city gates. Uh, Nowadays, it speaks of our testimony in court, in front of the judge, in front of the jury. You know, we're there and we swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, right? So help us, God. Uh, But um, it's not just for justice then. I think there is that aspect where we read the context that delivers souls. I think we also know that it's applicable to our spiritual witness. And, you know, as Christians, we use that word, hey, I went witnessing or I witnessed to someone today. And that is when we tell others about Jesus. You know, we're just honest, right? This is what I saw in my life. You know, I saw in my life how I was so lost. I saw, you know, um, just an emptiness. I saw how I was doing drugs and I couldn't stop. I was drinking and I couldn't stop. I had all these tragedies around me and I found no comfort in the world. That was my story. 
But then one day I heard a pastor say that Jesus will forgive you if you give your life to him. That when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all my sins. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And so I remember the pastor, he just said in such a simple way, come forward and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I remember that night I went forward and I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. And God came into my life. And God washed away my sins. And God forgave me. And God helped me. God comforted me. God just broke the chains. God gave me a peace that I could never find in the world. God gave me a love that I never experienced before. And so as I'm witnessing, I'm just telling you what I saw. I'm telling you what happened to me. I'm telling you that I've seen Jesus, and he is so good. You know, and as we're just witnessing, as we're just telling the truth, we're sharing it with others, and then what we do is we say, how about you? Would you like to receive Christ? Would you like forgiveness? Would you like freedom? Would you like peace? Would you like comfort? And you share it such a simple way. And what we find is that the, the faithful witness, he delivers souls. It was so cool. The other day we had a, a lady come over and she needed some help in scanning some paperwork and things like that. And so uh, she walked in the door, but the, the moment she walked in the door, she had this glow about her. She was like on cloud nine. And uh, immediately told, she told us that that day she had led a lady to Christ. That this lady was homeless. This lady and her daughter were in this crazy situation. And so she was able to minister to her and to give her a home in heaven. And her witnessing, her witnessing, it delivered a soul. And I'm just telling you, this is really the most important part of the, the witnessing. A true witness delivers souls. And it's so cool when God uses our life, when we speak the truth in love, as Ephesians 4.15 says, in order that we might help people get saved. In verse 26, it says, In the, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and his children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. And so, you know, you go through these Proverbs, you guys, and I know they're like, boom, like they're, they're hitting like different points and they're kind of random. But I'm telling you, once they really begin to sink in, then you really begin to start living life successfully, you know? And one of the most important things about wisdom is cultivating a healthy fear of God. You know, whenever you're going to talk about wisdom, you have to factor in the fear of the Lord. We see it so frequently throughout the book of Proverbs. You have to have a, a healthy fear of hell. You have to have a healthy fear of God's discipline upon your life and disobedience. You have to have a healthy fear of the loss of reward if you don't walk in holiness or or the fear that god won't answer prayers i'll tell you what 
Um, I've been reading Isaiah 58 and 59, and I'll just share this with you. I've never done this in my whole life as a Christian. I always read through the Bible, and I just keep reading, but for some reason, God has me just, I'm just stuck on Isaiah 58. Day after day, I'm reading it, because we're getting ready to fast for 40 days prior to the election, and, um, and, and I just know that Isaiah 58, it talks about the, the God's chosen fast. He says, it's not just, uh, you know, you being religious or you being ascetic or you, you know, denying your flesh from food. It, it's, a, it's a fast of uh, so much more than that. And as I'm going through this chapter, oh, man, I'm telling you, God is just really dealing with me and, and just he's trying to bring me to a place where I can be ready for a holy fast, you know. But when you, when you have that, that healthy fear of God, it changes you. Because Isaiah 59 is a scary uh, chapter. It says that the Lord's hand is not too short, nor his ear too heavy, that he can't hear you. But your sins have separated you from God so that he won't hear. And what that is teaching us is that sometimes our prayers are not answered, not because we're not praying, not because we're not fasting. Sometimes our prayers aren't answered because we're living in sin. There, there's, there's, like, there's unholiness. And God is saying, hey, you've got to start you know, doing things right. And he talks about feeding the hungry. He talks about not uh, saying whatever you want to say. You know, I mean, I don't know about you, but that is one of my greatest fears as a Christian is that my sin might be hindering my prayer life. And so there you are. It's not that you're not praying. There you are, not that you're not fasting, not that you're not believing. It's just that you're really not living. And so I want to have like a powerful prayer life. And so there is that, that fear. Lord, I know your grace. I know your forgiveness. I know the power of your blood. Lord, I know those things. But I, I just also know, Lord, you're so holy. And sometimes I see things happening and I'm wondering, Lord, I've been praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. And it's like nothing's happening. And, and again, maybe you're just waiting or maybe it's their fault. I don't know. But there's that, there's that fear inside of me. Lord, I hope it's not me getting in the way because God is holy. All I'm saying is that in the fear of the Lord, verse 26, it says, there is strong confidence. You know, and we have to have that, that fear of the Lord. And when we do, it, it changes a person. And Christians, man, they get consecrated. They draw near. And even as we read here, there's a strong confidence. Notice, and his children will have a place of refuge. You know, when we have that, that strong confidence, uh, I'm not saying that every child necessarily is, you know, then, you know, saved, but there's a greater chance for our children. That's basically what he's saying. I was reading one article about Christian parents and how it works with their kids and the influence upon the children. And according to one uh, research center study, it found that those children raised in households in which both parents were believers, I, I, I still continue to identify with the faith of their parents 
84% uh, of those raised by Protestant parents are still Protestant as adults. Similarly, those raised without religion are less apt to look for it as they grow older. That same uh, study found that 63% of people who grew up with two religiously unaffiliated parents were still non-religious as adults. And it's interesting reading the article how crazy it is when there's only one parent who's a believer and one who's not. And that's why, you single people, I'm telling you, man, make sure that if you find a girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, they come into your life, that that person really loves the Lord. Because according to these statistics, and of course we know God is bigger than statistics, but if both of them are believers and you raise your children from day one, then 84% of those kids are going to stay on track. So it's so important that we are equally yoked. Again, verse 26, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence and his children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord, notice, is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. So maybe you're here and you're thinking that the fear of the Lord is like a bummer and it's like a negative thing. No, here we see it's a fountain of life. Think about that. I mean, it's a fountain of life that turns us away from the snares of death. And, of course, that could be eternal death. I think it could even be physical death. I think that the devil would love to take us down and, and trip us up and trap us and those snares that are set for us. And I, I mentioned to you guys, uh, I love Whitney Houston. I love her music. I think about her beautiful voice. But then I start looking at her life and I wonder, Lord, there's a lesson there. Now, I'm not saying she's not in heaven, but I know that when she first started off, you know, she's singing for the Lord. She's singing in church choir. Such a beautiful, beautiful person. But then one thing leads to another. Next thing you know, she starts drinking. Next thing you know, the drugs come in. And I don't know, there's conflicting reports about, you know, Bobby Brown and all that. I don't think he was good for her either. And, and then, so what ends up happening? At, when I look at her, I just feel like she should have lived longer. But she died earlier. There was a snare of death that got her, and not just her, but her daughter. And that's why the healthy fear of the Lord is like drinking from the fountain of life that turns you away from the snares of death. I think about what happened to her and I pray, you know, because I know that it can happen really to anybody. The fountain of life. I think of that passage in Jeremiah 2 in verse 13 where God said, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So God wants to give them, you know, from this fountain of living water, but instead of going to this fountain, they've got these little shards, these little clay pieces that can't hold any water, and they're trying to drink from that. I mean, how is that going to help them, right? You know, when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, you know, he went for her because he knew that she was struggling in those relationship areas, and he knew that she was ostracized by everyone else, and none of the ladies 
probably you know thought very highly of her that's why she was going and getting water in the heat of the day imagine how awkward it was for her imagine how difficult it was for her but jesus loves her jesus loves her and he goes to her and he starts ministering to her start reaching out to her willing to drink from the same vessel that she's drawing water from and that's a huge thing and you know the next thing you know um the the lady she drinks from the fountain of living waters she gets saved and then she goes and she spreads the word in the city about jesus and what an awesome you know thing that god does and maybe you're here and and that's one of the the things i think that really we struggle with is relationships and even if you're married you know you might be thinking well you know i'm married and, and it's still not you know filling me i feel still feel like there's kind of something missing and, and that's not to disrespect your spouse in any way you know prayerfully you and your spouse you cultivate a good relationship but please don't put that kind of pressure on your spouse your spouse can never fill the void within you only jesus can he is the living waters john chapter 7 and verse 37 he he cried out if anyone is thirsty let him come to me, for out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Not only will you drink, but out of your heart will flow these rivers of living water. And so, you, you know, you read here in, in the Proverbs that uh, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. Verse 28, it says, And a multitude of people is a king's honor, but in the lack of people is the downfall of a prince. And so this is an obvious observation in the political realm, especially back then when the population provided for the prince and, and the king and their family, leading to the protection of the kingdom and the honor of the king. Verse 29 says, He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. And so, um, I don't know, you guys, if we could just get this one right, imagine how different life can be, you know? And I don't know, anyone here, you know, have a short fuse? Uh, you won't raise your hand, huh? I think we all can easily get irritable, huh? Maybe you didn't eat, or maybe someone, you know, subconsciously got to you, and you get home, and you're on edge or something. But this is a, a really, really important proverb, probably, in all honesty, one of the most important principles in all of life, really, in all of life. You know, that, 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 that's one of the ways you can tell, really, whether a person is wise or, or not. Are they easily angered? Do, do they have a short fuse? Do they fly off the handle? Is she always ready to explode? Obviously, a person who's impulsive, saying or doing things without praying or thinking about it, it is a fool through and through. But here you have someone who's impulsive in, in the aspect of anger. And that's why James writes in James 1, 19 through 20, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so, first listen. Okay, what did you say? 
oh, okay, you got to, you know, take it in first, right? And then you process it, right? You're, you're slow to speak. And then when you're processing things, what you're doing is you're going to ask God, okay, what do I say? How do I say it? Should I even say it? Should this be something I pray about? Don't, you know, just be, you know, explosive about it. He says, for the wrath of man, it does not produce the righteousness of God. And you might even be here tonight and you might be one of those parents who flies off the handle with your kids. And, you know, maybe it works for you. Maybe they're, you know, you know, when you start, you know, yelling at them or whatever, that you get your way. But um, that that's, you know, a lot of times counterproductive because, you know, at the end of the day, um, what we see is that a, a parent who gets all crazy and, and dramatic and, you know, loud like that, um, it's not going to work in the long term because really parenting is not us just making them do stuff. It has to do with God using our life to save them. You know, God using our life to point them to Jesus. And so my, my encouragement to you, it's kind of cool. Sometimes you see these parents or sometimes we do have a victory where we're calm, where we're cool, where we're collected where we say what needs to be say, said in a loving way, you know, that's how we deal with things. Because I think a lot of us here, you know, for the most part, we're probably not going to get all upset with our boss at work, although you might. Um, but, you know, more than likely, you're going to take it out on your, your spouse. You're going to get mad at them, or you're going to, you know, take it out on your kids. And that's why I think this really, the rubber meets the road. Be so careful, you guys. Slow to wrath. If you're slow to getting angry, that means that you are a great understanding. That means that you know a little bit about life. Verse 30, it says, A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. And so a sound heart is kind of like a healthy heart, a good heart that God has changed. It's rare, but very rewarding. Uh, when you read that verse right there, it's interesting how it says a sound heart. Think about it is life to the body. And when we're healthy spiritually and emotionally, it actually benefits us physically. You know, a, a sound heart is, I think, when we've cultivated, you know, God's heart. You know, you look at that person and, and you know, just you just see the work of the Lord, you know. And when that happens, your whole body benefits from it. But envy, it says, is rottenness to the bones. And so I think in one sense, what we're finding out is that, you know, that the heart, when it's right, when it's peaceful, when it's calm, it, it's good for you physically, not just spiritually, but it's actually good for you physically. A and then uh, uh, the flip side here is when you got this ugly things like envy, what that does is that just eats you up inside. He says right there, it's rottenness to the bones. Envy is one of the ugliest sins in the whole world. Envy is what the what was the reason the religious leaders uh, sent Jesus to Pilate because they were so envious of his success. Pilate knew, it says in Mark 15:10, that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. 
The dictionary defines envy as a resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. They're not just jealous and wanting what they have. They don't want them to have. It's very, very ugly. In James 3.16, it says, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. And that's why 1 Corinthians 13.4, it tells us that love does not envy. Because if you do, it takes its toll spiritually, emotionally, physically. Uh, I've learned in life we should be cheering for one another. I want you to succeed. I, I want you to go farther than I've ever gone. You know, that's got to be our heart. Um, the Bible talks about us esteeming others better than ourselves. That should be our heart. Verse 31 says, He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. And so, you know, we know that all people are created in the image of God and loved by God. And so if we honor God, then we'll have mercy on those he loves, on those in need. You know, it's crazy to think that there are some people who are so desensitized and callous that they not only ignore the poor, but they actually oppress the poor. You know, I, I know this is kind of a, a, a crazy example, but um, we see it in, in sometimes uh, these businessmen. Um, we see it sometimes in someone that will you know, go and, and hire you know, a prostitute. I mean, when you think about that, how they would oppress the poor like that. And so for us, um, what we see is that when we do that to the poor, we're doing that to God. That's what he's saying. And when you're nice to them, then you're actually doing that unto the Lord. And Jesus taught that in Matthew 25. He said um, that one day when people are going to stand before him, uh, more than likely, this is the judgment of the nations, but I think the principle is applicable for all of us, that one day they're going to stand before Jesus, and Jesus is going to say, um, come on in to the kingdom of God, because when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, I didn't have enough clothes, you gave me clothes. When I was sick and in prison, you visited me. When I didn't have a place to stay, you helped me out. And they said, Lord, when did we ever do that to you? We don't remember you. And the Lord said this. He said, whenever you do this to the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me. Never forget that. No matter who that person is, as you do it unto the Lord, it, it's a real true thing. And the contrary is true as well. Verse 32, it says, The wicked is banished in his wickedness, but the righteous has a refuge in his death. And here we see the contrast between the wicked and the righteous, the saved and the unsaved. You know, judgment is the equivalent of banishment to those who reject God's free gift of grace and forgiveness found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and the reason, you're like, well, why is this verse here? Why is this verse here? Because if you're here, if you, if you read this and, and you're not saved, God is warning you. God is saying the wicked is banished. What he's trying to do and what the Bible is always trying to do, God is always wanting to do is to save us. The righteous, they have a refuge 
in his death. I was listening to one study by Pastor Joe Foe, and he was just talking about how he was there so many you know, uh, times watching people die. You know, and one day we'll be there. One day we will die. And will we go to heaven or will we be banished? That's where we see the dichotomy here. The only difference between those who go to heaven and those who go to hell are those who open their hearts and receive Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. You know, the Bible says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when he died on the cross, he paid the price for all our sins. And now all we have to do is accept his payment on our behalf. You know, I've used this illustration many times, but it would be like if you went to court, and when you went to court, you're standing before the judge, and the judge says, okay, Manny, you're guilty. And I would say, yep, I am guilty. I've sinned a lot. I've done a lot of crazy, awful, terrible things, thoughts in my life, many things. And the judge then says, okay, you know, $20 billion. So I look at my wallet. I'm like, man, I don't have $20 billion. So what does the judge do? The judge gets off his chair and he writes a check for me. I'll pay it for you. That's what God has done for us. That's why if you're here today and you don't know Christ, if you're here today and you've never received him as Lord and Savior, understand that heaven is a gift. All you have to do is humble yourself, turn from your sin, and trust in Jesus Christ today as Lord and Savior. Like I was telling you earlier, the day that I got saved, God came into my life, and he's willing to do the same for you. Verse 33, it says, Wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding, but what is in the heart of fools is made known. And so if you look into the heart of a man of understanding, you'll find wisdom. You know, you don't need to do an x-ray or an angiogram. It'll show. Luke 6.45 says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasures of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so, you know, you see... Um, the, the, the beauty, you see what's in a person, usually just spending a little time with them and listening to them and watching them, just as whatever is within the heart of fools eventually becomes known. Acts 8.21, the Bible talks about they were you know, dealing with this guy Simon who wanted to buy you know, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He was a wicked man with wicked intentions. And it says, you have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. And so, um, you know, these guys, Peter, he knew you know, what was going on. Verse 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Remember I was telling you guys earlier that tonight, in tonight's proverb, we're going to study like what is required for the success of the United States of America? What really is required? And the answer is righteousness. The answer is Jesus. The answer is salvation. That exalts a nation. And I tell you what, you know, not every nation is the is same. I know there, this is applicable to all nations in one way or another. But when I think of Israel, I think of how God 
established Israel. It's so clear. They're a theocracy. They're a miracle. They're a miracle that they exist today. But when you look at the United States of America and you look at all the monuments in Washington, D.C. and all around our country that have scriptures on them, what you'll find is that, man, the Lord Jesus, you know, he established this nation. They we're different. And that's why the sin that's going on in our nation right now God, he's, he's going to judge. You know, Billy Graham said if God doesn't judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. There is so much sin and sexual perversity and things that are just atrocities in our nation today that, um, man, we're in big trouble. But we also see the remnant, huh? Like you guys. I mean, I'm not saying that you're all good. Some of you guys might not be. You know, God knows your heart, right? The Lord knows those who are saved. But some of you guys, I know, and you love the Lord. I know you do. So there is a remnant here. There is a remnant in our nation. And we're going to get raptured. And God is going to judge this country unless they repent. You know, I was reading this article. And I don't know if you guys know who this guy is, Trevor Noah. I don't know who he is. But um, I heard uh, today that he put something on Instagram and basically he said that gender reveal parties are outdated because he said the children are too young to choose their sexual identity. So you know how you have these parties when, you know, whatever, they're getting ready to tell you if it's a girl or a boy. And if it's a girl, there's like pink powder. And if it's a boy, there's blue powder. What this guy is saying, how many of you guys have heard of this guy, Trevor Noah? Some of you guys have? I don't know who he is. I don't know him. I don't know who he is. But um, I think he's famous. He's a comedian or whatever. But that is the mentality now. Think about it. You got a little boy? You should treat him as a little boy. You should raise him as a little boy. You should cultivate that masculinity within him. But the mentality now is so backwards, so demented, that they say, don't do that. They're saying, don't do that. Let him decide you know, one day you know, later when he's older what he wants to be. And it's just so crazy it's Isaiah 5.20 where they call evil good and good evil. That's what we're living in right now. One of the passages I was reading, Isaiah 59.15, and it, I, I told you guys I'm kind of stuck in Isaiah 59, 58.59. Listen to what it says. It says, yes, truth is gone, and anyone who renounces evil is attacked. So truth is gone, and, and if, you're like, if, you, if you go away from evil, the world attacks you that's kind of where we are now we say marriage is between a man and a woman and man they think you're you're bad so you know for us we have to pray for us we have to fast for us we have to be obedient for us we have to preach the gospel for us you know yes just pray for godly leaders let's vote for godly leaders but let's make sure that we don't look to men as the answer the gospel is the answer. Righteousness exalts a nation. Verse 35, right? That's where we are. And the king's favor is toward a wise servant, but his wrath is against him who causes shame. And, of course, this is true, like, in, in the workplace. And so I want to encourage you to, to be good, wise workers uh, wherever you're employed. Um, but ultimately, what we find, and I think what we probably should apply it to, is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You guys, don't ever forget that.
that you were saved to serve. You know, I, I want to encourage you to know that when Paul the Apostle was there and God arrested him on the road to Damascus and God saved him and God came into his life, I mean, praise God that, you know, right there and then, think about it, he established a relationship with God right there and then. But the Lord, from day one, man, day one, he told him, I'm going to use you and you're going to preach the gospel and you're going to stand before leaders and you're going to share with the Jews and you're going to share with the, den the Gentiles. I mean, we can be so caught up in this world and in this kingdom that we forget that we are servants of the Lord. And that's why it's so cool when I see people who are gifted using those gifts for God. People who are talented, they're using their talents for God. People, you know, we don't have a lot of time. None of us do, right? It seems like we don't have enough time. But people who use their time to serve the Lord. It's so beautiful to see. So let me ask you a question tonight. Or how are you serving the Lord? Right here we read it. It says that a wise servant is, is God is, finds the king's favor, the, the king's grace, right? But, but his wrath is against him who causes shame. And to me, that's the, the servant that's not serving. I think I heard that in Beauty and the Beast, one of those uh, shows, you remember? And so, um, you know, there's a cross-reference in Matthew 24 and verse 45. It says, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season blessed is that servant whom his master when he comes will find so doing assuredly i say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods what gifts do you have what talents do you have are you giving them to god are you serving the Lord the way that you should? I encourage you to just go all in with those gifts and those talents and, that God has given you. Because as you do, then God is going to use you to save people. God's going to use you to help those who are hurting. And one day, you will be rewarded by Jesus himself. Listen, it's not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it talks about that. It says that we are to abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in